5: We heard two rapid shots. Shots
6: fired, the house fire, shots fired.
5: I distinctly heard pallets hitting the garage door that we're right in front of. It was just like this,
7: zoom, Withdraw from
8: the structure, abandon the structure.
0: We got a working fire. I'm missing a crew member. We have other engines that are coming, so I got to shut them down, and I need police here.
3: When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley. And I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them tell us how it happened.
6: I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins from small town USA. Dave investigated sex crimes and crimes against children. He's now a patrol sergeant at his police department. Dan investigated violent crimes He's now retired. Together, we have more than two decades' experience and have worked hundreds of cases. We've altered names, places, relationships, and certain details in these cases to maintain the privacy of the victims and their families. So we ask you to join us in protecting their true identities as well as the locations of these crimes out of respect for everyone involved. Thank you.
3: Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Good morning. Good morning. So good to see you.
6: Great to be here.
3: And we have Detective Dave. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you too, by the way.
6: I appreciate that. It's good to see you.
3: Thanks. We're doing something a little different today. We have so many guests at the table. It's fantastic. So I'm going to let Detective Dave take it away.
6: With us, we've got... Several first responders on the microphones right now. We've got Captain Craig. Hi. Welcome. We've got Firefighter Bob. Good morning. Good to have you here. And we've got Firefighter Johnny. Hey there. We've got uh, now Captain Brian. Welcome. Thank you. How are you? Doing well. And we've got Firefighter Dave. Thanks for being here. Hi.
3: And we're not done yet. Continuing on with our incredible roster of guests for today. We are always pleased to welcome back one of our faves, Detective Justin. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. So pleased to have you. And last but not least, to round out the A-team of newcomers on the podcast today, we have Officer Robert. Hello. And Officer Andy.
2: Hello. Nice to be here.
3: Welcome. Thank you all so much for being here. And there will be a test later with all the names huh, just kidding. So, you all are part of a case that actually started with the fire department, and then, to put it mildly, shit goes sideways in a hurry, and the police are called in. So, our own Detective Dave, why don't you get us into this?
6: This case is a perfect example of how one agency's response to a certain incident or a certain call overlaps and can involve other agencies in this case. It involved multiple law enforcement agencies and our firefighters. So let's start this conversation with the firefighters who were the first to get the call about what everyone thought was just a simple house fire. Craig, what time did the emergency tones start hitting? It was early morning hours. Okay. And I'm making an educated guess because I work graveyard. What were you guys doing?
0: We were sleeping.
6: <laughs>
3: you don't stay up all night and play. Pinochle or something? No, or?
0: it's during the day. Ah. We, we get to sleep at night.
3: Oh, nice.
6: And you guys work 24 hours on?
0: We do. We work uh, a schedule that's called a 1323. So we work 24 on, 72 off, 48 on, 72 off. And during the day, we can run anywhere from 10 to 24 calls, depending on what engine company you're on. And we sleep when we can.
6: So you guys are sleeping. hmm And... Walk through what this particular call was from the moment you open your eyes and you guys start hustling to get ready.
0: So when the tones hit, depending on how many apparatus is how many tones are going off. So when you hear multiple tones, you know you're going on a bigger incident. So the tones start hitting, we roll out of bed, you hear more than two tones, which would be a a medic and an engine, so you know it's a bigger incident, so you're hustling, you're trying to get to your vehicle. So as we're rolling out, then when the dispatcher starts saying who's going in route, they say engine five, engine four, ladder six. If your number's first, you know you're going to be first due. So we're moving. We're hitting the rigs, throwing our gear on. She immediately says residential fire, says the street, which is right around the corner from the station. So we hop on the rigs. We pull out of the station. As we come around the station, we can see the flame links over the other houses. So we know we got a good worker that's right there.
6: Good worker being
9: a big it's gonna be a big fire. Yeah, you could see the fire walking from the dorm into the engine bay.
6: Dave, you were on the medic unit with Bob, you said? That's correct. And was the engine first to the scene or was the medic unit?
8: So the engine was first to the scene and they parked and there was a car parked in front of us and we were slightly
9: behind the fire engine.
6: Okay.
3: And Bob, you're in the ambulance, right?
9: Yep. Normally, when we pull up on a scene, we pull in front of the engine. We get out of the way for other incoming rigs. And actually, I was going to put the ambulance directly in front of where he was at. Uh, At the last second, there was a car on the street. And I thought, I can tuck in behind this car and into the driveway. So we were on the other side of the street from the engine company.
6: Brian? So it was the hoseman
7: in the back. My job is to pull the hose and put the fire out. That's kind of, I know that going in, so my mindset is there, but that means when we get there, i got to be ready to go. So I'm scrambling in the back because I've got seconds. i got a really short time. i got to be bunked up, air pack on,
0: and ready to go. We've worked together for years. This is an older crew. So I've been doing this 29 years this month. Bob's been 20 something years, you know, Davey and these guys here have been in here almost 20 years. So we had over a hundred years of experience between the five of us when we rolled in there that night. And so when I looked at the flame lengths, depending on who my firefighter was, my decision of what I'm going to do is going to be different. So when I looked in the back and I had Brian, we're going to go kick its ass because Brian knows what he's doing. We're going in the front door. We got survivable space. We're going to go get somebody because it was like four in the morning.
3: And what's survivable space?
0: So the fire was contained to the front of the building, so like living room area. So we had survivable bedrooms in different areas that if you make the fire go away, the problem goes away. So we were coming off the rig, we are going to hit it hard, and then we were going into rescue mode.
6: So you guys roll around the corner. I'm familiar with the area, so I know that we're talking a couple hundred yards from your driveway. You could hit a golf ball to the fire station. Well, you probably couldn't, but I could. (laughs) (laughs) So you're in the engine for less than a minute before you're arrived. Correct. And as you guys pull up, what happens next?
0: So the way that we train is when I'm getting close to the fire, I call dispatch. And when I call dispatch, it means everybody else be quiet because I'm about to say what I'm seeing, what's going on. So I call dispatch, dispatch answers back, and I begin to give my size up.
3: That's an assessment. That's my
0: assessment of what we have and what I'm looking at. That we have a residential fire, it's working. We're going to be offensive, meaning we're coming off the rig, grabbing hoses. We're going in the front door, and we're going to be fighting fire. We have a working fire. Engine five will be
8: offensive. We'll be offensive, stretching engine an three quarter.
0: Johnny, driving for me as we train, will give me three sides of the structure, because before we go in, I try to quickly go all the way around the structure. We call it a three sixty. So I can look to see what our dangers are. Is there a basement? Do I have people hanging out?
4: We're still in the truck. We're moving. I pull past just a little bit. And what he means by giving him three sides is as I pull up, I'll give him, you know, one side. Then I'll pass the front just a little bit so he can see down the other side of the house. So basically he's seen three sides of the house trying to give his 360. Uh, Think about where the hydrant is, which side of the engine we're going to pull lines from, and, and try to give Craig the best view he can. So I'm giving my size up as we are passing the house. And other crews are
0: listening because depending on what I see, they know what their jobs are going to be. There's a car on the street, so we have to be away from the curb a little ways. And as we're passing the house, all of a sudden, glass explodes through the cab and something hit me hard in the left chest. And it was this mist of glass. It felt like somebody threw a brick through the window. And because my window was down, it was a warm night. And so with my side window down, you can hear on my size up, I immediately turn to Johnny, who's driving, and I say, what was that? And Johnny says, fuck. I don't know.
4: (laughs) Quite surprising. What was that? I don't
0: know. I was just asleep 30 seconds ago, so my brain's trying to put this together because when we pull up, this is my job. My brain is on fire. It's not on anything else. And the firefighter in the back, Brian, says, it's just a fire, you pussy. (laughs) And so my brain went back to fire.
3: That's a tough room.
7: Right. Where I was sitting out and how it felt, it was like rattling through your
4: chest. You could feel it everywhere. I'll never forget the way it hit that windshield. And uh, just that sound was coupled with a percussive chest boom, you know. And I
7: honestly thought it was from the fire, which is why I made the comment to Craig that I did in the back that
0: it was the fire. (laughs) You know, let's let's go to work. Right. So my brain said it must have came from the fire. As I roll back, I look in my lap, expecting to see a brick laying in my lap.
3: You literally thought it was a brick.
0: I knew something hit me hard, and I expected something to be laying in my lap. And all of a sudden, glass explodes through the cab again, and something hit Johnny. And at that point, I remember thinking, we have to get out of this cab. There's stuff coming in the cab. So all I know is my chest hurts. Glass explodes through the cab. We have to get out of the cab, and we got a fire going. And as we pull up, I'm looking at the fire, and There's tall flame lengths. There's 30, 40 foot flame lengths. So my brain's going through is there's survivable space. It's morning time, there's a car on the street. There's somebody possibly inside. We gotta make a quick hit on this. We gotta get inside. I got Brian as a firefighter, so we're gonna be really aggressive on this. And so we come off the rig. I don't have to tell Brian what to do because we train. He's coming off the rig, grabbing the hose, going the front door. And then I'm doing my 360, meeting him there and we're going in. So as I come off the rig, I grab my pack and I go to sling my pack. And there's just this deafening boom. So my brain's turning. I was just asleep. I usually go right on my 360. I stopped on the sidewalk because something wasn't right. I remember I can close my
7: eyes and see Craig keyed up on the mic when it came through the front windshield, looking down, looking over at John, their interactions. I can see all that from where I'm at. And none of it registered what was going on, which I think was probably one of
0: the hardest things for me to look back on, just not knowing. At that moment, I remember thinking, it's coming from the house. So I thought there's a gun laying in the house that's cycling,
6: and it's shooting our direction. I've been to fires with you guys. Where you hear ammo cooking off in a fire, you guys are used to it. Yes.
3: You thought the gun was just because of the heat of the fire was going off on its own.
6: Correct.
0: I thought it was a semi-automatic, and that's where my brain went at 3.30 in the morning. So as it would go off, and it was putting another shell in, and was going off again.
6: So a semi-automatic will cycle itself. Once the round is ejected, another round goes in. Right. The issue is you got to have someone pulling the trigger. So I'm sure on 3.30 in the morning, Brain. Right. I didn't think that. (laughs) Fair. But at that time, I mean, this doesn't happen around here. No. These things don't happen in our town. And I'm sure foggy graveyard, Brain, you're like, who's going to shoot at firefighters? Honestly, everyone loves firefighters.
3: Right. You always say, people wave to firefighters with five fingers and to the police with one.
6: Right. So (laughs) firefighters, they don't go into a scene like that with the mindset of, just be careful, we might start taking fire from somebody. Yeah. So adding to all this, our house fire is pretty loud. Yes. Like just the actual activity of the fire. So you, you couple that with this weird boom that keeps coming off from the West. So what the hell is that? It just adds to all the chaos. Right.
7: I just want to go put the fire out. That's what we're trained to do, right? And I get around the side of the truck, and I go to the line. And Craig, when he got off the truck, had the door open. And I heard everything skiff down the side of the truck and down the doors. It was just like this, zoom, ting, ting, And there's 200 feet of line that I'm trying to shag around and deal with because the fire is still continuing to grow and if we're going to make a stop on it and we're going to get after it quick, I'm thinking, am I going to go right? Am I going to go left? And I got to look at this holistically because the way you lay that hose line out, you know, we have an old saying that a few seconds in the beginning saves you minutes at the end. So I had about 50 feet left on my shoulder and I was getting ready to drop that right in front of the structure and call for water. And you talk about trying to wake yourself up and that task objective mentality, like it's so ingrained in us. I looked around and I remember scanning everything and looking at the cars and the things around and nothing nothing really registered to be off per se. People were out, they were all standing around. And I mean, you get that on all the calls we go on, you know? Got a cell phone in their hand, they're watching you. So it nothing seemed out of the ordinary except for this consistent booming sound. It didn't make sense to me. And Craig was yelling something about, is that a gun? And I'm still thinking it's the fire. And then the next
0: words were, it's a gun, run. And as I turn and look to my left down the sidewalk, the suspect was advancing on me at 20 yards. And then the light
6: bulb went on.
3: And that's the first solid confirmation we're being shot at. This guy's trying to fucking kill us.
6: Yeah. Right. So this guy's name's Clay. Clay is shooting at you guys.
0: Yes. He actually shot us at 30 yards. And he must have decided it wasn't working because here he come. And I remember seeing the look on his face. He had his glasses on, he had the shotgun in his hands, and it was just emotionless. He had no emotion in his face whatsoever. It was really weird because I never saw a face because
7: the big bank of smoke rolled down and it was all blacked out. I could see him, but all I saw was a dark hole where his face was, and I threw my hose and
6: ran. And is this just a casual, normal walking pace stroll that the suspect's on? Yep. Like eerie. Yeah. Yeah. This is like the old horror film where you're trying to get away from guy and and Jason walks faster than
4: anyone can sprint, right? Right. (laughs) And he comes
6: around the corner and you're like, oh,
4: shit. Here he comes. Here we go again. (laughs) So he had a, whether it was tactical or not, he ambushed us really well. We were looking north and he was shooting from west. So we were all looking out Craig's window, thinking things are coming through that window, bouncing off the cab, hitting us in the chest. That's where our brain was at because, like you said, we don't normally get ambushed. Right.
3: Bob, what were you doing?
9: I had started scanning out in front of the ambulance, and he had parked his Prius in a neighbor's house, and he was standing around the corner. Before he came out of the shadows, I saw the muzzle flash from the end of the shotgun. I jumped into the rig, grabbed the mic, and broadcast. We have shots fired, shots fired, shots fired. We need police. We have
0: shots fired, shots fired. Shots fired. Shots fired. We need a face out!
3: Shots fired.
0: We have white male, about three houses on the first side of the road to the west. Uh, heavy white male,
3: approximately six years old, with a shotgun.
4: Heavy male, white male,
3: with a shotgun, three houses to the west.
6: And he's not shooting at his neighbors. No.
0: When I saw him on the sidewalk, he was walking past two people on the grass that were watching him walk past them. He told
9: an older couple that they needed to get back in their house so they didn't get hurt.
6: All he cares about is first responders.
9: Yeah. So we took off and came around the back of the engine and met up with
0: Dave and Johnny was there. Yep. And I thought Bob was there also. So I thought I had my crew. So I told everybody, we got to go, we got to go. So we take off running across the street as we did. The suspect moved out in the street to get in between the engine and the ambulance and was still firing on us. We still remember them going by our head and skipping off the pavement. And we made it two houses, and I realized we didn't have Bob. And so I said, who are we missing? And Johnny yelled, we're missing Bob. Immediately, it was like, one, two, three, four, that's Bob. So we're two houses away, dug in behind a vehicle. And at that point, I got several things going on. We got a working fire. I'm missing a crew member. We have other engines that are coming right on top of us. Usually those other engines would have been there. So I got to shut them down and I need police here.
8: I want you to withdraw from the structure, abandon the structure. Engine 5 has abandoned the scene as an individual
0: with a shotgun. He's shooting at us. All personnel, stage far away,
1: we're missing one individual. All personnel, stage far away, one of our crew is missing.
6: To fire, recap, fire- we have firefighters hunkering down for safety because they're being shot at by a man who is deliberately targeting you. And one firefighter is apparently missing in action. This... I assume, is when the police officers get called in. Officer Andy, why don't you begin?
2: I'd snuck home to make a quick cup of coffee and uh, didn't bother calling out. I'm like, I'll just be here for a minute. Usually it's a slower part of the shift. And it just finished brewing. And I hear on the radio, the fire department's requesting assistance or at a house fire, a male is shooting at them with a shotgun. The dispatcher was so smooth and nonchalant and it just seemed like, Uh, As a shoplifter at Target, something like that. (laughs) And it took me a minute.
10: What did she just say? What's
3: happening? So, Detective Justin, how do you get roped into this mess?
10: I was off duty, so I'm asleep, and I'm awakened to a page out for our SWAT team. It's a text message automated system. And I wake up to my phones going off with the message SWAT call out. They give an address on Hillcrest and the details that there were shots fired and three houses on fire. Of course I
2: rush out to my car and I'm driving there and all the other units copy up and say I copy the call I'm I'm on my way as well. And I was like is that it? Is there more? What the hell?
3: Officer Robert, you're nodding along with what Andy and Justin are saying.
5: Yeah. I was on the east side of town as well. I heard the call similar dispatch that Officer Andy did. What I remembered was that They sent three units to assist the fire department with a structure fire, and shots were fired, and what kind of caught my attention was one of the details was that there was a a firefighter unaccounted for.
10: I have the radio on in my car, so I'm getting bits and pieces, but I don't know exactly what I'm getting into or exactly what's going on as I'm driving towards Hillcrest. So... Our SWAT team's a part-time team, and so there's a handful of detectives on it. We exchanged some phone calls during the car drive, and hey, do you know anymore? No, do you? No, and so we're all kind of in the dark as to what exactly was happening. And house fires aren't really something that we get called in for. It's Certainly not a SWAT situation. Obviously, the shots being fired—it sounds to me like a, a you know domestic dispute, something like that. Suicide, set the house on fire. We don't really know, but your mind's trying to come up with answers as to what you're going to. We learned that the firefighters have communicated via radio that hey, we're getting shot at. We need police help now.
2: So I was driving there and a fire truck pulled out in front of me. I had my lights and sirens on and this big fire truck pulls out in front of me and I'm thinking, well, I think I need to get there before him <laughs> if the <laughs> if their guys are getting shot at, but you know, I wasn't going to argue with a, you know, several ton fire truck, so I followed him in, and uh, they were staging uh, several blocks away other fire units that were in
6: route to the location.
3: What does that mean exactly, staged? So fire
6: sometimes, based on different circumstances and details in the calls, they'll stage a few blocks away until we make the scene safe and secure because fire doesn't have vests. They don't have the same protective gear that we do. So they ask for the police department to come assist and make that scene secured and safe. The structure fire is secondary to their safety.
2: But usually when we get called to assist with a fire call, usually it's traffic control or blocking off streets or crowd control or something along those lines.
3: Okay. So Officer Robert Andy is now behind a fire truck that just pulled out in front of him. Where are you?
5: So as we're getting there, I radioed to Officer Andy that, before you guys go, I want you you just hold up, and we'll be there shortly so we can form a team instead of us going individually and without a good plan because we didn't know if there was multiple shooters or just the one shooter and i noticed that it was fully involved as i got probably within a couple miles of it that time of the morning it's pitch black out and you see this glow coming out of the ground and it's obvious that it's a fully involved structure fire at that point
2: i saw the glow like robert said and i ended up parking quite a bit of ways away just because wasn't sure what we were going into.
10: I still have a 10, 12-minute drive from my residence to this location, and it is a mess. The entire street is covered with emergency vehicles from our agency, neighboring agencies, fire trucks. There's still houses fully engulfed. It is, it's more akin to a war zone than a street in our small town. So the police are still on their way. Firefighters, most of you guys are running down the street
6: wearing heavy gear, but... It's nothing to protect you from the bullets. Describe that scene and what's going through your minds, Brian. It was so chaotic,
7: and we picked up an extra runner when we cleared the engine. And it was a civilian that came running up next to us as we as a pack in full bunkers and air packs are running this 40-yard sprint as hard as we possibly can. This guy out of nowhere, like, joins the crowd. He's like, hey, do you guys know you're being shot at? We're <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we do. That's why we're running. And we're encouraging him, you know, come with us. You got to get out of here too. You're now sitting in the same position we are. So you're a part of us. Let's go. And when we rounded the corner and everybody kind of regrouped there and it was, I mean, it took like a millisecond to look around and you realize one of us isn't there. My
0: brain went to Bob's been shot because the last time I saw the shooter, he was advancing on us.
3: So firefighter Bob, where were you?
9: So I went into the radio in the ambulance, which I knew would get out. That was the first thing that went into my mind. I've got to stop people from coming in here. This is a bad situation. I don't want anybody to come in here and get shot or killed. I was able to warn everybody, but it also kind of put me...
3: You're a sitting duck.
9: Yeah. I didn't realize these guys were gone. And when I went to go from the ambulance to the engine, he had shot at me. I went back behind the ambulance, came around the other side, he shot again. I felt something hit me in the shoulder. And I could hear, it sounded like pellets hitting the house right next to me. And I remember a chip being taken out of the windshield of the ambulance. I went back behind the ambulance because I thought, okay, if I can keep the ambulance between him and me, you know, I've got a pretty good chance here.
6: Right. It's like the old game of tag where you're going around the car.
9: It really was. And, you know, there was no panic. It was survival. I thought for sure he's going to come out and try to kill me. And in my career... You know, I started doing the firefighting stuff when I was 15, and I'm almost 55. So I've been doing this a long time. Not one time have I ever felt like, okay, this might be it. And that was the first time in my entire career that I wasn't sure. Okay, am I going to go home or not? But then all of a sudden, I hear this voice out of nowhere, and it's Captain Craig. And he's like, do you have eyes on the shooter? So I went to look again, and the shooter had his head down, and it looked like he was reloading the shotgun. And the angle he was in the street, it gave me an opportunity to use the ambulance's cover to get to the corner house, just 30, 40 yards from the back of the ambulance.
3: And is that where you were, Captain Craig?
0: That's where I was. I was trying to get him to us. Once we acquire Bob, we take off. I'm
3: a medic, five driver. I'm 10 behind the
0: ambulance. I'm staying put where I'm at. Copy, do you have eyes on shooter? I'm um, shooter to the front of the ambulance I'm just gonna stay where I'm at right, I think he went to reload he's coming back Engine five, run to us. If you can, we're so we crossed the street as we crossed the street I attempted to key up the mic to tell dispatch I have everybody because I told dispatch I was missing somebody and I knew by doing that the cops were coming and they were going to be coming hot and so I had to let dispatch know that I had everybody and we are fleeing the scene I keyed up the mic she answered and as I turned to my left, I watch Bob and Johnny do a scorpion in the yard of the station.
6: <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> boy. Right. So the scorpion. I played baseball in college. The scorpion is you're running all out and you eat shit face first. You come down on your chest and your feet become the scorpion's tail.
0: They come up over.
6: Come up over you and touch the ground. Like right. a scorpion sting. I watched them
7: scorpion in the front yard. Yeah, at the time it was pretty heart wrenching, but looking back it was pretty funny watching that
4: go down.
3: Sure. <laughs> Johnny,
4: As the driver, I didn't have my pack on, right? And so as Bob was coming towards us, I went out to get him because I knew I was a little bit faster without the pack on. So I went out to assist Bob with getting that pack off. So I was trying to get the buckles undone. Bob was really in just disbelief. I mean, helmet crooked and everything. I uh, was just like, that guy just fucking shot me. I was like, I know, I know, let's go, buddy. Just trying to get that pack off so we can cross the street and get out of there. I loosened it enough. I threw it in the middle of the street. And uh, we made it to the yard of Station 5 into the grassy area. And Bob just kind of collapsed. And I was like, "Uh, you know, quick pat down. You okay, Bob? You Okay, we got to go, buddy.
0: I watched Bob go face first into the grass. Johnny went down on top of him. And I started yelling, get him up. We got to go. We got to go. So when we hit the station, we didn't go inside the station because then we can't see him coming. So we continued down the side of the station. When we hit the corner of the station, my plan was I immediately yelled, Johnny, on shooter watch. And I believe it was Brian started checking Bob for holes because we're looking, we know we're hurting. My chest is hurting. Bob's hurting. Do we have holes in us or what is it? And so we're looking for holes. Johnny's on shooter watch because if we saw him, we were then going to advance to the next corner and then the next one and keep ahead of him until we had reinforcements show up.
6: Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360-degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Safe home security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break-in. In addition, Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe home security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24/7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. US News and World Report named Simply Safe best home security systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it best customer service in home security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60-day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash smalltown. That's simplysafecom slash smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe
3: Okay, so now we have firefighters leaving the scene for safety and police officers arriving. But it's chaos. Officer Andy, you're up.
2: So, as I got out of my car, I grabbed a shotgun
5: And I heard Robert say that he was grabbing a rifle. Yeah, once we got there and we teamed up, we were actually at kind of a jog to the house towards the fire. As we ran by the fire station, what I recalled, there was maybe eight guys or so standing there in front of the fire station.
0: I saw an officer on foot and he had an AR strapped to him. He was running on the opposite side of the street. So that's when we were able to kind of take our guard down and really check each other.
10: You guys
6: are used to being in stressful situations, similar to police. Firefighters, for the most part, are really inoculated to stress, but this was different. How long between your initial approach and the first time you see a police officer in the area? Brian? That's a hard one to answer because in my head,
7: it felt like forever, but I think it was within minutes. Like Craig said, it was a pretty good feeling to watch them come by with their ARs and whatever the next steps of this
2: outcome were going to be, we were protected at that point. I mean, they were running to safety, and while I was standing there at this huge fire, I'm thinking, I'm in the wrong gear to do anything about this fire. They have their job that they do, and we have our job that we do, and I fault them not one bit.
3: Sure. And so once you arrive, you both are in uniform? Yeah. So this shooter can identify you as police officers- Does he start shooting at you also?
5: Yes. As we rounded the corner onto Hillcrest, the house that was involved was on the north side of the road. and We rounded the corner on the south side and going along the houses, crouched over trying to stay in the shadows because we didn't know where this person was at. And I think it was when we were about three houses in from the cross street that we rounded. We're heading towards an SUV that was parked in a driveway. And directly across the street from that SUV was the the house that was involved. And then the fire truck and the ambulance were parked directly in front of that house. I don't know, I would say we're 15 feet from that SUV. We heard two rapid shots. And I distinctly heard pellets hitting the garage door that we're right in front of. And I kind of look up and I see holes starting to appear (laughs) in the garage door. And then I think I was after the second shot was when I heard the window pop on the SUV that we're headed to.
3: So this guy's a pretty good shot. You're shaking your head, Andy, like, nah, not that good a shot.
2: Well, it was a shotgun.
6: I mean, I don't think it's really fair.
3: What do you mean by that?
6: Well, it's not fair because with a shotgun, the pellets spread out. So the further you are away, the more spread you get in these pellets when you fire the gun.
3: Oh, so you can hit more stuff because your bullets go everywhere.
6: Yeah, there are a lot of pellets in those shotgun shells, and... You don't have to be precise with that weapon.
3: I see. Okay. But
6: there's no mistake that he's aiming for you guys. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He knows who you are and he knows where you're coming from.
5: Yeah, he had the advantage of now the fire's spreading. So he's got this huge spotlight that's basically lighting up the entire south side of the road. So it's getting hard to find shadows to hide behind. I mean, it was so intense that I could feel the heat from across the street. It was pretty hot. Wow. When we rounded the corner onto Hillcrest, I remember seeing the fire truck in the middle of
2: the street, and there was a hose that had been pulled out and was left in the street. There was an ambulance there, and the lights were on, and it was kind of like an eerie sight because you don't expect that. You expect like 10 to 15 firemen running around and water being poured on the fire, and the fire was big and bright and hot. It was just weird seeing that fire truck in the middle of the street. Nobody around. Totally abandoned.
6: Do you know where the shooter is, or do you just get the general idea of where these rounds are coming from?
5: At that point, we didn't know exactly where he was at. We just kind of have a guess that it's coming somewhat from the west as we're coming around the corner there. There was also stuff that was exploding in the garage. I don't know if it was propane tanks, but we have all that other background noise as well as trying to figure out where this guy's
3: at. So how do you proceed you're losing your shadow cover. The fire is fucking hot, and you don't know where this guy is.
2: So I ran up to the SUV, and I got on the radio and said, we we're being shot at, and I do remember the feeling of the pellets from the shotgun passing my head and hearing it impact on the left
5: side of my head.
3: Oh, my God.
5: I remember when uh, Officer Andy called out, shots fired you know, we're getting shot at. I retreated back to the corner of the house, the house that the garage door had got pelted. And the other officer came back with me and Andy was up at that SUV. At that point, I heard there was a neighbor to the west of that SUV that was crouched behind their car. And they kept pointing across the street, yelling, he's across the street by this silverish Prius. He's over there. He's over there. And I remember yelling out to Andy. I said, cover me, I'm going to make my way over to those people because they're out exposed to this guy. So to kind of protect them, I skirted along in front of that SUV and made it over to where that gal and guy were at. They were the only witnesses we had at that point of where this guy might be.
2: The guy that was in front of the car that Robert contacted, he lived several houses down actually and he had come out to investigate what was going on and had actually seen the guy Clay shooting at the firefighters as they were getting out of the truck, and he told him, "Hey, knock that off." And Clay told him something along the lines of, "You knock it off, or you're next."
3: Oh dear! Once you now know where Clay is, where he's shooting from across the street, it's still a little bit like a fatal funnel. Like in order for you to get across the street, you're fully exposed. Either one of you,
5: I was looking and looking, and I could not see him because I, I was in a pretty good position where I could take the threat out if it was expose himself. I could not see him. That whole side of the street to the west of the fires was pitch black. And then you're fighting your eyes with this big glow of fire and trying to adjust your eyes back and forth and trying to figure out where this guy's at. And you're waiting for the next volley of rounds to come toward you.
6: If you think about it, if you're in your house at night and you have the lights on in your kitchen and you're trying to look out the window into your backyard and there are no lights out there, you can't see a damn thing. Nope. And that's basically what Officer Robert's trying to do.
3: Right.
2: I had a shotgun myself, one of our department-issued shotguns. So I was trying to light up the area near this silver Prius with the dinky little flashlight on the end of the shotgun. It's not making a bit of difference. So I looked back at the fire truck, and it had two spotlights above the doors like police cars have. So my thought was get to the fire truck, put the spotlight where the Prius is. So at least that area is lit up because sometimes suspects, when you're on a perimeter, they won't cross a spotlight because they know they're going to be exposed. So even if I can't see him, it's going to give us maybe a little bit of a barrier from him popping out on us. And so me and the other officer who was with Robert and I run over to the back of the fire truck and the right side of my head was exposed to the fire. And I swear my ear was melting from the heat coming off that fire so we move up to the driver's door on the fire truck and i cover him as he climbs up turns the light on points it over to where the prius is and then we kind of back away and as i'm sitting there i'm thinking well this fire truck will probably stop a bullet or two this isn't a horrible place to be i had a little better advantage of the house from where i was And then the other officer decided to crawl up on top of the fire truck, like where the hoses are kept. He had a pretty good advantage from up there.
6: What's the time frame from the time you guys park your patrol cars to when you get up on top of the fire truck? What are we talking here? Five minutes. So things are happening quick.
5: Yes. About that time, I was providing cover for them because I had a good view of, of the Prius. But it was just a bunch of shadows around it. I couldn't see what was around it. Again, you know, we're battling the glow of this fire Once they'd got in their position and got uh, spotlights, I'd heard the other agency from the west of us get up on our channel and uh, said they had an armored vehicle available and they would be en route. So they were coming over from their city where they store their armored vehicle.
3: Justin, you're nodding over there.
10: Yeah. So fortunately, our small town has a neighboring city that monitors our radio traffic, our call screen. They had heard this go on. They have a couple of their SWAT guys that are working that night and on their own dispatch themselves to a location where they keep an armored vehicle that their agency has and are able to retrieve that vehicle and start responding to our scene.
3: What does an armored vehicle
5: do? It's called a Bearcat. It'll take a rifle round. You can almost drive right up to a guy that's shooting at you. and It might shatter the glass, but it's not going to penetrate the glass itself because it's bulletproof glass.
6: It's really allowing them to... Buy some real estate at this point and pinch this guy in because you've got cover. You're not exposed.
2: Correct, yeah. There's some officers that poke fun at the Bearcat because it's a big, bad Bearcat, and we don't have anything like that. We do have armored vehicle now, but, you know, there's been some fun poked at the Bearcat. Why? I think it's kind of like a rivalry between uh, agencies and like, oh, they got their Bearcat out. It must be a big deal or, you know, something along those lines, but... (laughs) I couldn't hear a whole lot that was going on on the radio because the fire truck, the engine was revved up in order to pump water. I could hear the popping from the fire still. And I look over my shoulder and I see headlights. Then I hear on the radio, the Bearcat has arrived. They drive by. I'm like, I love the Bearcat. I love the Bearcat so much right now.
3: (laughs) Craig, you're chuckling.
0: When the Bearcat come around, it was moving, and it was there quick, and I swear it was on two wheels when it came around that corner. It was impressive.
6: (laughs) To be driven like it's a patrol car is pretty impressive. That means get here yesterday, we are on our way.
0: Actually, with everything happening the way it happened, looking at the response of the police to come help us, there's no words for it. it. It just made you feel like they got our back. They know we're in trouble, and here comes the world.
3: I love that.
2: one of the sergeants inside radios and says, uh, Officer at the fire truck, we can back up and you're know, hop in. And uh, I was like, yep. They back up. I jump in the Bearcat. Best place I could have ever been at that point. <laughs> so I jump in the back and then we're driving up in the yard and out the window that I could see out of on the sidewalk leading up to the house along the garage, there was a perfect half brain sitting on the concrete there.
3: Oh, God.
2: So we pull up alongside, and the body was right down on the ground. And I could see the shotgun there. I could see it kind of sticking in the head of the body. Oh. And it was obvious Clay was dead. We didn't really know if Clay was the only shooter at that time, but it was pretty obvious that he was the one with the shotgun that was shooting. And so we felt safe enough to get out of the Bearcat and investigate closer.
3: Did it appear that he was the one who took his own life?
6: That's what it looks like to me. Did police fire any rounds that day? No. Not one. Not one? Not one. And where you find Clay, how many lots west of the fire is he?
5: I think it was a third house to the west of what ultimately we determined was his house, the initial one that was on fire.
6: So he lit his house on fire waits for the fire department to get there, opens fire on them, then transfers his anger over to the police department, retreats to the west, and shoots himself. Yes,
5: the Prius actually ended up being his as well. He had pulled it out of the driveway and parked it in front of this house where he took up position.
6: Any of the houses involved in the fire occupied? They were all occupied except for his. Were the occupants able to get out safely? Yes. So you guys go from active shooter mode to what do you do? Well, I spent a little time with the
2: Bearcat, telling much how I appreciated it. Uh, <laughs> and then it was kind of like, oh, there's a bad guy. He's down. And then we turn around like, oh, shit, there's a big fire right there. Somebody <laughs> should do something
6: about that. So in the meantime, which one of you guys grabbed the fire hose first?
3: Officer Robert is raising his hand.
6: Yeah. Well, I tell
5: dispatch that we need fire back. A minute goes by, still nothing. Prior to my law enforcement career, I was a volunteer firefighter, so I know my way around a pump a little bit. So I went over to the pump, and I figured out what hose line that they had pulled out. And then I went over to the pump, and I actually charged the line and revved it up and got pressure going. And another officer and I grabbed the hose, and we started fighting the fire.
3: Officer Robert, (laughs) this is very impressive.
5: It looks more like you were watering the lawn, but... (laughs) No, that was the other officer because he was he was a little bit intimidated with the pressure, so he'd only open it, and it was just barely spun. I said, no, you need to open it all the way in, in order for it to work. So we're trying to cool down the third house that's on fire now, so then a fourth house doesn't catch fire because the other ones are, are gone. We're, we're not going to save them. When
6: does the fire department show back up?
0: We had radio traffic also because it went to greater alarms. So our initial alarm for a residential fire is four engines, a truck, a medic, and two chiefs. So the minute that it went beyond that, they started hitting multiple alarms, which every alarm added three more engines, another truck, more chiefs, medics, and they're staging at different positions. I didn't count how many we had. I bet there was 11, 12 engines coming, multiple trucks, and they're staged because the fire, we're watching it grow. So you can still hear the ammunition coming out of the house that we could hear when we were there, and it sounded like machine gun fire at times coming out of the house and you could still hear the boom of a shotgun and we thought that the police were engaging with them is what we believed and when it was over and it was deemed that the shooter was down we did not know what we were going back into because we were the first crew back into the scene so we didn't know if we were going into bystanders that were shot we had a huge fire that engulfed four houses at this point so we were prepared to break up into a crew to take care of down civilians and a crew to attempt to stop the fire from growing.
6: Talk about a mental adjustment. You just had the biggest pucker factor call of your life and now the shooter's down and these guys got to come back and potentially do first aid and treat and evaluate people with medical issues, possibly even the guy that's shooting at them. And now you got a whole neighborhood on fire.
4: When we were decided to go back in, I remember standing in the line, and Craig was at the end. I could just kind of looked at Craig, and when they called scene safe, it's like, well, we're going to go back, right, Craig? For me, there was no adjustment. It was like, my engine's there. We're ready to fight fire. We're ready to plug holes. And he looked down the line, and it was like, you guys good? We're good. Let's go.
9: I think I remember the chief say, you guys are done. Chief called us done.
0: We had, uh, we could call it a quick meeting, but it was, are we ready? We're ready. And we ran back into the scene. I love that. When we got back in the scene, we saw nobody laying. So we went right back to fight and fire. Johnny got back on the pump panel to give us water. Dave and Bob grabbed a hose line and got in between one of the houses that was fully involved and just took the windows of the next one and they made a stop on it.
3: What does that mean, made a
4: stop on it? Just save what you can.
0: They got in between the two houses, the one that was fully involved and the house that had just popped the windows on it and was attempting to try to catch it on fire, and they made a stop on it at that point. And Brian and I grabbed the other hose and went the other way and made a stop on the fire from consuming houses as it traveled to the east. And we just ran out of water when the next rig pulled in.
3: When officers Robert and Andy picked up the hoses before you guys came back, did that do much to help?
4: They wasted some of our water, yes. They did waste some of our water. We could have used that water.
0: (laughs) The rumor they like saying is they fought fire. Well, they actually instead of six hundred fifty gallons, we
6: only had five hundred gallons to do our job with. (laughs) Yeah. Well, every cop wants their firefighter badge. (laughs) They do. Hey, I'm here and the equipment's here. Right. And the firefighters
3: aren't. How hard could it be? (laughs) How hard could it be?
4: Here we go. (laughs) I love it.
3: (laughs) So, Detective Justin, do we know if Clay set the fire on purpose to lure the firefighters to him
10: We obviously don't know for sure. We weren't able to talk to him, but the indication is that the fire was absolutely set as bait. He had dozens and dozens of rounds of shotgun ammunition with him. It's not like he just grabbed the shotgun and bailed out of the house. He had a belt with pouches on it. He was equipped for a gun battle. If he would have just had one weapon and the shooting occurred after the fire started for whatever reason, that would be one thing, but I think his plan was to be one-sided. That's why the fire was set, because firefighters are softer targets than police. Firefighters come running to your door to help you versus anticipating getting shot at.
3: Did he have any prior history with police?
10: He wasn't a longtime concern of ours. He was relatively, historically, kind of a pro-police guy. He wasn't an unknown name in the community. He was kind of an average guy until he had some physical health ailments that plagued him. And then he quickly, quickly kind of spiraled. He was in his late 50s, 60s. He's just kind of your average neighbor. And it was one of those things that no one we contacted saw something like this coming. We were able to find some recent social media posts that he made indicating a hardship in his life that he was having a hard enough time at least to post on social media for folks to see.
3: How did his house catch on fire?
10: And looking at it after getting through the call and the investigation that ensued, which took days and days and days, fire marshal handles the fireside and determined it looked like the gas line to the residence itself had been tampered with, and then the fire had started in that location of Clay's house. And so he'd done something to the gas line to try to accelerate the fire, and it didn't look like it had the result he wanted it to have. You know, there's no explosion or anything like that, but it looked like that's where the fire was started. Wow. His residence is about 200 yards from the street that this fire station is on. This fire
6: station is about 50 yards from the intersection down the street from Clay's house. So he knows where the firefighters are coming from. That's the closest one. I mean, God, it's in his backyard, basically. He would have seen the reflection of the lights coming down the street. Even if they didn't have their sirens on, he knows they're coming. And they start taking rounds right as they make the corner. So he was waiting for them. He had a plan. He was trying to hurt people. Right. So all three of you are hit? He shot all five of us.
4: At some point, yeah.
6: Okay.
0: I don't have an explanation for it. You can believe in God, not believe in God. Behind us, the same distance, there's holes in metal and siding of house, but there's no holes in us. Brian got shot in the leg, and it was through and through, through his turnouts and did not touch meat. And we were shot where it it actually hit us hard, and it did not penetrate our turnouts. So I believe in God, don't believe in God. Somebody was watching out for us that night.
3: That's amazing. Bob, you're the one who was in the line of fire the longest because you stopped to use the radio in your ambulance to call for help. What kind of marks did you have on you when you finally got to safety?
9: When he actually shot and hit me, I was about 20 yards from him. I had three marks in my chest and my shoulder from the rounds hitting. And it was, in fact, I wasn't sure if I was shot. Or what I just knew that I had pain in my in my shoulder and my chest wall. It wasn't until I got home and went in and take a shower and I took my shirt off. My wife goes, What the hell? And my shoulders all starting to turn all bruised and I've got three distinctive marks in my shoulder and chest wall.
6: So just lucky that he's far enough away that it doesn't break the skin. You can feel it. And the windshield slowed it down enough. So he's closer. You guys are potentially mortally wounded.
9: Yeah. We walked through his burned-out structure a couple different times and dug around in there. This is like weeks later. There was AR-15s that the receivers melted on him. There was an AR-10, and then we found a bunch of 3 white mags that looked like they were from Fowles. What's that? A specific type of military rifle and thousands of rounds of ammunition. So he had a pistol on his side also from what I understand a one in a bag
10: and he chose the shotgun. Thank god he's using a shotgun and not the AR. Right and not only shotgun but he was shooting bird shot or lighter weight shot and had a bunch of buckshot with him but it just wasn't what was in the gun and not just five or six rounds I mean he had 20 30 extra shotgun rounds that he'd taken with him had he been shooting buckshot or a rifle we would have dead firefighters
6: they would have suffered serious injuries.
10: No doubt. He had two different handguns with him, both loaded, ready to go, and either one of those would have been far more devastating than the birdshot. We just got lucky.
6: I think it was probably an oversight on his part. I think he just looked to see if the gun was loaded, didn't check to see what load was in there, and off he went.
3: So lucky for you.
0: Right, and that's what I said, is he chose the correct weapon. So had he chose a 223, we probably wouldn't be able to be talking to you right now.
3: And what about your families? How did this incident in particular affect you and your families if it did? We'll start with you, Johnny.
4: Well, I have two little boys at home, 6 and 10, and my wife. The uh, Hillcrest incident brings it home that one day I might not come home, but unfortunately for fire family kids, they grew up pretty fast knowing that there are bad guys out there. So I'm able to be a little more candid with them. If I was telling a story to a classroom, you know, I'd ease back on some details. But my boys, they know what's up. And like, what did you do? Did you go on that car accident? Yeah. Did somebody die? You know, and it's like, yeah, buddy. It was bad, you know. So it's tough with the little boys. And then my wife, I can tell her anything I want to, which is amazing to be able to get that off your chest. You know, this is the kind of shift I had. It was awful.
3: I should think that would be essential.
4: Yes, But also, I try to not burden her with the calls we go to. It's just, they don't need that, you know.
3: Right. Brian?
4: My wife was there
7: waiting and said, so what happened? And I explained it to her. And, you know, her reaction was pretty priceless. It's just, well, the outcome's the outcome. You're here. They're home. Everyone's safe. Bad guy's gone. So my daughter is a senior. She was pretty upset. We uh, went and had lunch with her and... My boys are young enough that they didn't, I don't know if they quite got the gravity of what occurred. I mean, they knew it was bad, but didn't quite understand. So that was pretty easy to deal with in that respect. Nobody was ready for me to go back to work, if that counts.
3: (laughs) (laughs) firefighter gave.
8: So I initially told my wife, and she was kind of in shock. He's coming home today. must have actually been a pretty big event, and it was still sinking in with her and stuff. And we have three little ones, uh, three, five, and seven-year-old at home. And I thought it'd be best not to really tell them what what was going on. But eventually they found out.
3: Because they find out at school?
8: Yeah, because people kept coming up and going, is your husband okay getting shot at and hit? And I have my three-year-old asking, Dad, I don't want you to go to work because the bad guys will shoot at you. Uh.
6: Isn't it amazing what other people that, Aren't first responder families will come up to a first responder wife or husband and say?
8: Yeah. And my wife was right by my side, pretty solid and stuff. And we were talking about the events. And we left all our turnouts at the station. And I used to have my helmet with me and my boots. And I was cleaning that out of the rig because it's like, I'm going to be off work for a while. So I'll just kind of throw this aside. And as I'm getting my helmet out, I see a ricochet where one of the pellets had struck my helmet. And then it sunk in a little deeper. It was like, oh, shit.
6: And that's why I'd ask about the mask and the timing of that is so lucky nobody took shotgun pellets to the face. It is. It's like somebody was looking out for all of you guys.
9: Definitely. Bob. I have a lot of family in law enforcement. I have a stepson that is also a firefighter paramedic for our department. This shooting has taken a huge toll on my wife and she asks probably more now how my day was than she has ever. Um, you know, she was ready for me to retire. But I still like going to work, and one asshole's not going to ruin that for me.
3: Captain Craig.
0: Anything you can think of, one of us has been on it and seen it and had to help the person that it affected. And it does change you. It's always funny because when you meet people that don't know police or fire, they always ask you, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And I've developed a response of, let's just say my dreams are different than yours. Oh, wow. We see people that worse. And we want to genuinely help people. And you cannot help everybody. And when it goes to what we risk, we risk nothing for what's already lost. But we risk a lot for what can be saved. And that goes with equipment, lives, everything. And we all plan on going home tomorrow. And that is our goal. And we are not going to risk our lives, but we're going to really try to take care of somebody, and that may have cost us our lives.
3: That was incredibly eloquent and beautiful, and I'm deeply grateful to you all for your candor, and it's an amazing story, and thank you all for joining us. Thank you.
6: Thank you. Thank you you for having us. Thank Thank you. you. Appreciate it. I'll say this, and I I don't want you guys' egos to inflate too much, but— so Dave and I, our cousin, uh, he's a firefighter. And I remember when I was a kid, we were, what, five or six years old? And we were down there, and my dad got to go on a ride-along with the with the fire department. They would stand on the back of the fire truck, like, back in the that- Yeah, riding Tillboard. I miss that. Yeah. I love Tillboard. And I got to watch that, and I was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I think that was kind of what lit the fire for me to get into some sort of first responder career. I've got a ton of respect for you guys. I see what you guys do and what you guys deal with. I'm so glad you guys made it out of this. I'm glad that you guys came down and so grateful that you guys shared this experience with us. Thank you. Thanks for I, having I, us. Thank well, you.
4: Truly have, I, I truly have respect for police. As I call you my brothers no matter what side of the city we're on because, well, I mean— you guys do an amazing job too. That's, that's
6: how we feel. We get we get these calls that a uh, fire's asking for code three cover at this address and I'm like, woohoo, let's go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you guys get in an altercation, you notice we always pile in.
6: Yeah. <laughs> we love that. Yeah. I'm like, these guys have been working out all day. They should be helping me. Can I tag in? Yeah, come on. Especially if you're one
0: on one. There is no question we are in the fight.
3: I love this. This is amazing. So good. Thank you. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan, and our books are Cooked and Cats Wrangled by Ben Cornwell.
6: If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. And join the Small Town Fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at smalltowndicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash podcast.
3: That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country
6: in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam.
3: Nobody's better than you.